Welcome to Caregiver SOS on air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS on air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much. We're delighted to be back. We come to you every week on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zernial. Carol is a nationally known gerontologist, chairman of the board of the National Council on Aging, and serves as executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Nice to see you. Thank you very much. It's nice to be, you know, here we are. It's getting towards fall. There's been little hints of fall coming which has been delightful. If you live in South uh, Texas, that's delightful. There have been some mornings where you could almost say it's cool out. Yeah, cool being, you know. 80s. Yeah, less than 80 (laughs) degrees. It's cool outside. It's getting nippy. And that one day of winter is coming. Yes, yes. We'll have our our one day of winter to look forward to. We've got a great guest coming up in just a little while, uh, Dr. Eduardo Caveda, who is a well-med physician who has a great sense of humor. We'll be talking with him about a variety of issues caregivers should know about. And it's always, you know, a great thing to have access to a physician, somebody who knows medicine from the inside, who's willing to share those secrets. And he'll be doing that with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I want to talk a little bit about long-term care. Most of us, unfortunately, don't have insurance, aren't prepared, don't know what we're going to do. So it occurred to me to ask you, what do they do in Japan? Well, and the reason you're asking me about Japan is because Japan has more old people than anyone. So, like, you know, we keep talking about, oh, the baby boomers, the baby boomers, they're getting older. Well, in Japan, they're already all old. They're all old. Twenty percent of their population is over the age of 65. Wow. So that in 20 years, 20 percent of their population just disappears So I saw a recent article in the New York Times talking about the number of houses available. We think about Japan and and small houses and all of these people. And what's actually happening is that there's houses everywhere because they're dying out. As a civilization, they are dying out. They don't have immigration. They're a very homogenous society. And so when you want, when a lot of uh, gerontologists in the aging field, when we want to know what's going to happen to us, we look to Japan. Wow. And so we don't have a long-term care system. Most people, uh, unfortunately, think that Medicare is going to pay for nursing home care or for care, you know, home support care. If they go to the hospital and they go to the nursing home, that Medicare is just going to pay for them to live forever, which is not true. There are only two ways to pay for long-term care. If you have to go to assisted living, nursing home, any of those places, you will have to pay that out of your pocket or you will have to pay for that. Um, you'll have to spend all of your money and spend down to Medicaid and live in poverty. And not every assisted living facility takes Medicaid. And in fact, m- assisted living facilities don't take Medicaid. I can tell you that there would be ooh, maybe a handful, maybe. And um, it runs about four, five, six thousand oh, yeah. a month. A month. 20, yeah, the low end is in the five thousand range. Wow. So, um, so in Japan in 1994, when they realized they were going to have this huge population, they actually developed a policy around long-term care, and they. They created a mandatory long-term care insurance system, uh, and they finally got it up and running in 2000 so that everybody in the population pays in 
from their payroll, like we pay to Social Security, right. or through pay- buying some other insurance. So half of it comes from your contributions, and the other half comes from tax revenues. And what the Japanese get out of this that's so interesting, so they get care, they get care in the home, or they get paid as family caregivers. So, you know, let's say my mom needs long-term care, then I'm going to be able to be the paid caregiver for her. It used to be in Japan, you know, I think we were joking before the show, and I mentioned Japan, you were like, oh, go live with your relatives. So there was this expectation in the Asian culture, the Japanese culture, that young people would take care of them. Well, there was a, there was a study, and they found out that half, one out of two caregivers abused the older care recipient, and one out of three caregivers hated their care recipient because there's there was there was absolutely nothing for them. It's so this scary. it is scary. So this subsidized long term uh, care policy, it, it, they have low copays. There's a lot of competition since everybody has this insurance in the whole population, right? Then there's a lot of products, so there's competition for the best adult daycare, the best in home services. The money's there. The respite's there because the money's there. We don't have any of this. So I love this article that wow. I was that I was reading at the very end. You know, it was talking about the United States and saying that they felt optimis- optimistic because, as Churchill said, you can always count on the Americans to do the right thing once they've tried everything else. That would be us. <laughs> that would be us. So that will be our hope for long-term care. Wow. So this is just a... You know, it's the, we're starting the presidential debates, such as they are. Uh, this is the time to start asking them, what about long-term care in this country? We don't have long-term care policy. We don't have any insurance. We can't afford it. What are we going to do? 10,000 baby boomers turn 65 every day. Every, every day, day. Every day. And then you think about all the inc- high incidence of Alzheimer's, that people don't have any savings, the high incidence of chronic conditions. It gets scary really quickly. And what happens? Uh, what happens is that we're actually looking at a baby boomer population that has less money than the preceding generation, which is the first time this has happened, that has worse health than the preceding generation. That's also unusual. We have a lot more disability. Um, and so, you know, with no savings, poorer health, and a longer lifetime, we're still going to live longer, but in worse shape with less money? Doesn't sound real good. My mom and dad never made much money. He was a pharmacist back then. They didn't make much. Owned a drugstore, uh, which kept him busy, but didn't generate much income. But he always had money, and they were able to put a retirement program together. Able to go into, uh, in my mom's case, ultimately uh, assisted living, paid for out of pocket. Never was concerned. I said to my dad one day, I, "How did you do this?" He said. I didn't spend. You didn't spend any money. Yeah. So the average cost of long-term care for a family member, you know, for caregivers, it's like $138,000. And so I know I don't have that a year. extra. I don't have that kind of money to pay. Well, over the, over the, usually that's. Oh, over you know, the, the life. Course, yeah, okay. yeah, over the course. That's your, that's the minimum that you're going to spend is 138. So $138,000. Hmm. We need a policy. Yeah, exactly. So Japan would be a place to look. Yes, you can go. You can go. You can get cheap housing, but they're small, and they're fixer uppers. You got to move all the way over <laughs> there to Japan. Yeah, long term care. No immigration. Sorry. New rules uh, in terms of blood pressure and what may be good, what may be bad. Well, this was also pretty this interesting. Is a big this is a big change because it was a new study. It's they called a groundbreaking study. It was like nine thousand people, literally nine thousand people, and people. They've been. You know, we we know that high blood pressure is bad, but so how low should the blood pressure be? 
And the general wisdom and guidelines has been 140, you need to be under 140. That's the upper number, systolic. That's the upper number for the systolic. For seniors. So systolic is, that's the, that's that top number. That's when your heart squeezes. It's on the pump, so it squeezes. Right. Um, and so that's the top number. So they, they decided to do a study and say, what if we got blood pressure down to 120 instead of 140? It took three meds. So these are people, all the people in the study were at high risk for heart heart attack, heart disease, something bad happening. So they put half of them on three meds to get their blood pressure down to 120, and the other half they gave them two meds to get their blood pressure down to 140. So they all had high blood pressure. And what they found was so conclusive, they stopped the study a year early. They just stopped it. They didn't need any more evidence because it was so overwhelming. The people that had brought their blood pressure down to 120 had 30% less heart attack, stroke, heart failure, and 25% less death. Wow. Risk of death. Huge, huge. So now they're like, ooh, this is going to change everything. We're going to have to go back um, and rethink how we treat high blood pressure. You know, we're talking to a physician today. Maybe we'll get a chance to ask him about that. Um, but high blood pressure, now it looks like we need to bring it down to 120. 140 is not quite good enough. Um, you know, we may d- need to change the medication regime, and it, we definitely are going to change those guidelines. It used to be 120 over 80 was what you wanted. That used to be. Right. And then for older then people, they, they said it. 140. Right. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> Guess not so good. Not so good. So, yeah, wow. 30% reduction. I mean, it was very conclusive. So if you're on, you know, your high blood pressure medicine, uh, if you've got 140, you might want to talk to your physician. Hey, have you heard of this study? What about 120? How do I get there? And if you don't know about it, Google it and hand it to the yeah, physician. Yeah, Google it and show them the, show them the studies. I bet they've read sense. it. I bet they've read it. Now, you have the secret answer to the three things, Carol Zerniel, we should do before breakfast. Okay, so this is from Kathy Smith, who is one of those exercise health gurus, so that lets you know where it's from. But actually, it's very good advice. I actually read this probably almost... Oh, a year ago, I bet it. And I started practicing some of these. I admit, I, all three. Three is a lot. Um, but the first one is before breakfast. First thing you do when you get up is you have a glass of water because you actually dehydrate a lot during sleep. So having that glass of water, that jumpstarts your metabolism. And then she recommends a glass of a cup of green tea. So green tea, if you don't know, has about as much caffeine as coffee. So you're not going to miss the coffee. Uh, It has all those lovely antioxidants. But getting up, getting those liquids in you. So that's number one. Um, And this is also good for keeping your body in better shape. If you're trying to lose weight, this helps with that. Um, Number two is she says do yoga for 30 minutes. Uh, If you've never tried yoga, you probably can find it in your community. You can find it at your senior center. Yoga is very popular. It'll reduce your stress. It will tone your muscles, um, and it will boost your immune system. And number three, you're going to plan the meals you're going to have for the day because if you plan in advance, you're much more likely to do it. So these are healthy meals. Do not plan McDonald's. Um, Plan your meals for the day and eat breakfast. So you've gotten up. You've had your water and your tea. You've done a little bit of yoga, and then you've planned your meals for the day and had breakfast, and you will find yourself with higher metabolism, feel better, you're going to trim down a little bit, and you're going to be less stressed. So and says Kathy we, uh, Smith. As we learned last week, steel-cut oats. Steel-cut oats, whole grain. I like that. Or a protein. Personally. Up next, we're going to talk to Dr. Eduardo Caveda about everything every caregiver needs to know about the doctor and their care recipient 
You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air. Carol Zernio with me. I'm Ron Aaron. You hear us at 9.30 a.m., The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, and one of the things I'm most pleased about being a well-med patient is the way in which I'm treated by all the staff at the clinic I go to. And Dr. Robin Eikhoff, that's not by accident. No, it's not. We really spend a lot of time training our staff and asking them to really connect with the patients and get to know them because we consider them part of our clinic home. And the other thing that's really impressive to me is the amount of time my well-med physician spends with me, and you do the same thing with your patients. Yeah, I, I really do try to, and, and we do a lot, a lot more time than your typical uh, provider can afford to give, and I think that allows us to get to know the whole patient and not just their diseases. That's cool. Don't have a lot of time to talk about prevention, but you do a lot of that as well. We spend an enormous amount of time on preventative measures. Want information about WellMed? Want to be a WellMed patient? Call 210-614-WELL. 210-614-WELL. Well, we're so pleased you are with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron. Along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel, and we've got a very special guest today, a WellMed physician who you can find at the WellMed Westlake office. He's with us uh, uh, for this hour to talk about what caregivers ought to know about some of the issues that their patients may face. Eduardo Caveda earned his medical degree from Boston University School of Medicine, completed his internship at Brook Army Medical Center here, and his family medicine residency at Odessa family practice. Before medical school, he served in the United States Army for several years, board certified by the American Board of Family Medicine, and decided uh, at some point, there you were uh, in the Army doing good things for the country. What made you want to go to medical school? Well, thanks for that introduction. I I felt really good about that. Well, I appreciate it. (laughs) I could go on because they had more here. (laughs) Well, you know, uh, as as, as a kid, I was always interested in human anatomy and the human body, my father is a physician. Uh, he's retired now and uh, had a big influence on me and and uh, just uh, enjoying uh, caring for patients. And uh, being a doctor is kind of a special profession. You get to do a lot of things that you don't get to do in other professions. And uh, that, that's basically what drew me in. And I'm really happy that I'm a physician. I'm very satisfied with, with, with my work and particularly at WellMed. It's a great place to practice. How did you end up, end up with WellMed? Oh, well, uh, being here in San Antonio... Uh, I was looking for a, a place to practice, which uh, really uh, allowed me to take the time I needed to take with my patients to care for them the way I really, truly wanted to. And uh, WellMed uh, enables you to do that. The, the way they structure the practice, the way they they uh, support their physicians is truly unique. And uh, I can say that with 23 years' experience. Uh, so I have uh, worked at a couple different places, and uh, this is by far and away the best place I've found to work. Well, it was part of the genius, uh, as Carol Zerniel knows so well, of Dr. George Rapier, the founder of WellMed, to try to change the face of health care for seniors. And, and a lot of that meant giving them the time to spend with the doctors so we could focus on prevention. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. It's, 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 a, it's an undertaking that uh, a lot of doctors have to do in uh, five to ten minutes. And it's, 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 it's extremely stressful for both the doctor and the patient to accomplish that, whereas at WellMed, uh, you're offered the, the, uh, an opportunity to do it uh, the right way with the right amount of time and with the right support. So uh, without a doubt, uh, it, uh, 
there's a lot of places you can go to get your medical care, but if you want the doctor to really listen to you and spend the time that he needs to take with you, WellMed's the place. Well, so um, you're so you're a WellMed physician, uh, and this show deals with family caregivers. And we were talking a little bit before the show about things that you know during an office visit. If I'm a caregiver and I'm bringing in my mom or my dad. What would be things that you might want me to know about what's going to happen at an office visit or what I might uh, prepare or bring with me to an office visit if I'm arranging everything? Well, that will range between whether you're coming in for the first time or whether it's a follow-up. One of the things we stress for the first time is to be sure uh, and bring all the medications in their bottles to the doctor. That is just so important, and it really helps us out in doing our initial evaluation. How does it help you out? Well, if we have an accurate uh, assessment of what the, what the medications that the patient's actually taking, then we can, uh, with reliability, uh, uh, make the changes that we may or may not need to make. Uh, a lot of times doctors will have question marks on doses, and, and it just gets very hard for us to make decisions if we don't really know what's going on medication-wise. Yeah, I take a thing from my heart, and I don't remember the name, and I don't remember how much I take. That does not help me. And you've never heard that before, right? Uh, you know, I, I deal with it. Uh, in, in, I don't want to be confrontational with the patients. I'm obviously they're they're there because they want to be helped. So we just uh, we would prefer to have them at the initial visit. But if if we can't, we we can have our nurse make a phone call, maybe call a family member, or or just uh, schedule a short follow up to come in with with the actual medication. And that would include over the counter as yes. well as prescription drugs. I'm and, sorry. So what you don't want to do is what one of my relatives did, which was put all of her medications into one bottle. She got out a big bottle and just combined all of them, and that's what she was taking with her. Yes, that's, uh, that is the perfect storm for a physician. That's when we've got to get our smartphone out and uh, use one of our little apps that does pill finders and try to figure it out from there. But wow. that's, that's pretty time-consuming. But I don't see that that often, and generally patients and their caregivers are pretty good about bringing the meds. So what else should uh, the, the caregiver know when they're coming in? And let's so, start so with the first, first visit. visit. A first visit. So, so I'm the caregiver a and it's the first visit. I brought in the meds. Um, is there anything else I should be bringing or maybe what should I expect? Well, you know, uh, obviously, you know, we want to bring in as many medical records as we can. And so uh, a lot of the times if you have medical records at home that are, are pertinent, uh, it would be useful for you to bring them in so we can scan them into our database and, and look and see what tests, procedures you might have had recently or even in the uh, more distant past, which we won't have to repeat or do over again and give us valuable information. A lot of offices are now on electronic medical records, so we can do that pretty quickly in a, in, in a, uh, in a lightning flash uh, uh, with electronic medical records. So that would be another thing. Um, I always encourage as many people to come into the first office visit who deal or interact with the, with, with, with the patient uh, So, because many a, t- many a time they can offer me valuable information as to what actually goes on at home and, and, and what the patient's problems that they don't want to verbalize truly are. When you say don't want to verbalize, that there are issues uh, that a lot of us don't want to talk about? Well, for instance, uh, a lot of elderly patients uh, are afraid to tell their doctors about certain problems they might have. For instance, uh, they're starting to have memory problems, and they have fear of losing their independence. Uh, sometimes the doctor is the last person they want to tell, but the caregiver is just itching, itching to tell you, <laughs> and uh, quite oftentimes that's how you find out. And another one that brings me into one of the topics I w- uh, wanted to discuss today would be falls. A lot of elderly folks... Um, uh, are at high risk for falls, 
particularly uh, when they're over the age of 70, even some at the age of 65, and they're somewhat sedentary, they start losing muscle tone. And one of the things I really wanted to emphasize is uh, for the caregivers, if it's possible, and I know it's not possible for all patients to walk daily. You know, some folks have have uh, terrible arthritis or they've had an amputation or whatnot. They can't walk, and we, we would have to... Uh, take into account what else they can do. But for most uh, uh, fairly healthy elderly folks, they can walk, and that's great for their muscle tone. And muscle, muscle tone is going to determine whether you fall in a lot of the cases or don't Tell fall. Tell us what muscle tone means. Muscle tone is basically, if you, took it, you look at your lower extremities, the biggest muscles in your legs, okay, and your lower back is going to, those are the muscles that when you lose your balance as a reflex, they're going to suddenly tone to try to keep you from from falling in other words to try to try to uh you to re for you to regain your balance those muscles need to be in, in fairly good tighten shape up. Tighten, tighten up. up yeah so if you don't exercise very much and and your muscles are kind of soft and kind of noodly you're going to probably fall over <laughs> and and that could lead to the big complication that we all fear, especially in, in, in the elderly, and more often in females than in males, which is the hip fracture. Let me remind folks, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM. The answer brought to you by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, talking with Dr. Eduardo Caveda. He is a WellMed physician. You find him at the WellMed Westlake office. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. Uh, you mentioned seniors falling, and Carol, we've, uh, over the years, have talked about the incredible number of seniors who fall, which very often begins a downward spiral. Absolutely correct. You know, um, some of the statistics, and I'm, I'm doing this off the top of my head. I, I just recently read an article, but for a senior who falls and breaks their hip, there's a 50% chance, that's 5-0, that they will not be walking two years after that fall. Wow. And, and many die. I was just saying, there's a, yeah, there's a, for those that are injured, um, it, there's a high percentage of people that, that a year later they won't even be alive. Five, per, five to ten percent of people who suffer a hip fracture actually are not alive after one year. Right. Why is that? Well, as, as you mentioned, the downward spiral. If you have a fall which, uh, where you fracture your hip, then that leads to uh, immobility. And immobility then sets you up for a host of complications, being uh, all the way from pneumonia to a, a clot in your lower leg to skin breakdown, which could lead to uh, devastating uh, infections. So, you know, it is just, I think it's underemphasized, and I'm glad uh, the both of you have, have brought, brought this to the public's attention. It is very underemphasized how important it is to remain mobile well, and active. Well, that I think that w I'm just going to double underscore what you said is so important because you were talking about just getting people to, to get up and walk a little bit. So this is not a difficult, complicated thing. This is walking to the mailbox. This is walking in the parking lot. This is going down to the short corner and back on your block, you know, wherever it is, so that the big enemy of in, in old later life really is sitting down in front of the TV, Absolutely. just you know, or sitting down and having people bring you things in that remote control. Those are the enemies. The clicker. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's 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 always easier for us to uh, to to kind of uh, be laid back, and especially here in Texas with the heat. You know, we don't want to encourage people to be walking in 110 degree weather either. But early in the morning. Or, or after six or seven p.m. when air it cools off, malls. 
or, yeah. or, or a senior center. Absolutely. Or a senior center. Yes. WellMed has wonderful senior centers uh, in, in this area. And those senior centers do have uh, exercise uh, facilities mm-hmm. in them. So uh, just incorporating uh, uh, light activity, I'm not talking about going out and jogging or lifting weights. You don't have to do that. You just have to, I would suggest 30 minutes every day, walk or do some type of a low-impact activity as, as your physical condition allows you to. Right, because it's that weight, the weight shift, you know, that's what helps strengthen it from right leg to left leg because you want to do something that you, helps you to shift your weight from one leg to the other to help strengthen those muscles. And the bones because the weight bearing is also uh, uh, stimulates uh, uh, the bone growth. When the caregiver brings her care recipient in for their first visit, as we've been talking, uh, you go over the records. Are, are there vaccinations you want to be sure that – uh, folks have had and other vaccinations that you'll be giving if uh, you don't know if they've had them. Yeah, absolutely. We really want to know uh, for the common vaccinations, especially now that we're entering into flu season, uh, this is the time. This is the time for elderly, particularly uh, folks who have any kind of pulmonary condition. Or pulmonary meaning? Any kind of lung condition. Uh, if you're a, a, a smoker or if you've got uh, chronic asthma, if you're a diabetic, um, you know, the flu, uh, the flu vaccine used to be uh, given to certain subpopulations, but now it's pretty liberalized to uh, just about anybody should be getting a flu vaccine. Uh, I, I really don't see any contraindication unless you're somehow allergic to the, to the flu vaccine itself, which is extremely rare. In fact, there's a, a newer super flu vaccine for mm-hmm. seniors. That's a, like a double shot. Yes, that's correct. It's it's the it's like the heavy duty uh, flu vaccine, and again, that's also available at WellMed, and uh, and for certain seniors that qualify, we can get them that shot. And who would those seniors be? I'm well, thinking of a 73 year old guy in pretty good health. He could go with the regular flu shot. Oh, you got. You're listening to Caregiver <laughs> SOS on air, brought to you by the WellMed Charitable Foundation on 9:30 a.m. The answer. We will talk more with Dr. Eduardo Caveda. I'm Ron Aaron, along with. Carol Zerniel. Well, he is a delight to talk to, having a good time talking with Dr. Eduardo Gaveda. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel on Caregiver SOS On Air. You hear us at 9.30 a.m., The Answer, and you can hear podcasts of our shows as well. Just go to caregiversos.org and look for the podcasts. We were talking about the first visit a caregiver taker may have their care recipient at and they walk into Dr. Caveda's office and we were talking about vaccinations and you mentioned this time of year especially flu shot what else along with the flu shot of course uh, I recommend uh, the pneumonia shot which is an every uh, six year uh, shot initially I think you only need two uh, and then you're done for life and that's going to protect you against about 60 percent of uh, the pneumonias that are out there in the community. Uh, this is especially for seniors who are at high risk. And anybody who's diabetic is high risk. Anybody who smokes and has lung problems is at high risk. Um, it's just something that is like a cheap insurance policy for folks to get. You know, you mentioned some, something about the spleen. People that don't have a spleen are high risk. As Correct. Yeah. Most and of us think about our spleen. So I don't think often. most of us even know what our spleen does. <laughs> you know, uh, I was just uh, uh, talking about that uh, 
uh, in passing, but it is uh, one of the indications. Uh, as even as a young person, uh, if you don't have a spleen, then you're at risk for what we call encapsulated uh, pneumonia organisms, and those t- uh, are, are going to be uh, dealt with with the pneumonia vaccine. So if you were in a car accident or something, or uh, some type of trauma, and you lost your spleen, you definitely want to get a pneumovax. What does your spleen do? Well, uh, your spleen is more uh, support uh, for your uh, blood system to sort of filter out uh, certain types of uh, toxins and also not so much filtering toxins, but it it is a sponge to clean out uh, our blood cells from uh, white blood cells that are not functioning properly, red cells that are not functioning properly. It, it, what it does is it uh, eliminates the, the guys that are aging in, in your bloodstream and uh, need it's to taking retire. Out, taking out the guys. <laughs> yeah. 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 See, once again, picking, <laughs> well, yeah, picking, yeah. picking on the old yeah. cells. The old <laughs> cells. Well, and then you said that, I believe off air, you mentioned there was one other one yes, besides the, the pneumonia. Tdap. Tdap. That's uh, basically uh, your uh, diphtheria, acellular pertussis, uh, tetanus booster. A lot of us uh, can't remember the last time uh, we had a tetanus uh, shot. Maybe uh, we step on a rusty nail or cut ourselves. It's always a rusty nail. It's never a rusty something else. Even if it's not a rusty (laughs) nail. Come on in. You know, you... You know, if you don't know when you last got one, you're you're better safe than sorry. Uh, you, the last thing you want to do is find out by getting tetanus. And but the m- far more important, uh, not necessarily more important, but uh, also pertinent lately, and it's been in the news, is getting our pertussis boosted. Whooping because, cough. Yes, the whooping cough. Uh, a lot of seniors are around. Uh, their great grandkids or grandkids or have uh, grandkids that are that are pregnant. And uh, pertussis is very dangerous to the fetus, very dangerous, uh, and also very dangerous to the uh, newborn uh, up to six months uh, of age. It can be deadly. So getting your pertussis booster would be doing your uh, grand uh, kids uh, a, a great favor and would be uh, a very wise thing to do. Have you ever heard the whooping cough? Oh, yeah, and it sounds just like that. It's very distinctive. It's very distinctive. Uh, I've heard it, of the whooping crane. <laughs> we have those around here, too. They come up from I haven't down heard the hooping cough. Port Aransas, I've heard South the Padre hoop, Island. Hooping crane. Okay, and then the last one is shingles that we did yes. a whole show on a yes, few weeks uh, ago. Yes, very good point. Now, why are shingles uh, such a problem for seniors? You know, uh, shingles is, uh, or zoster as the physicians call it, is, is a re-expression. It's a re-expression of chickenpox that just about all of us have, have had as children. And so much as I you know, hate to think about it, that little virus that we caught as a kid is still hiding in our central nervous system, usually in our spine and uh, our spinal cord, to be exact. <laughs> and it sounds really creepy, but when under the, under the right circumstances... Let's say we have a cold or we're, 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 we're not uh, uh, adequately nourished or we're under a lot of stress. Our immune system might take a little break, and that virus can then travel along the nerves out to the skin and show up as this shingles rash, which is extremely painful, 
Uh, and uh, in actuality, you may actually feel the pain, the burning, and the stinging before you see the rash. In a day or two, you'll see the rash. It'll usually be on one side of your body, not both. If it's both, we know it's not shingles. And uh, very often it's on your uh, anterior chest or post, uh, coming out from the spine anteriorly on your chest. Uh, it can occur on the arms and legs too, but pretty, uh, pretty commonly it'll be on the chest or the thorax. And um, but it'll be extremely painful. If you've had chickenpox, you're immune to chickenpox. But you're not. But you're going to get shingles. You are immune to chickenpox. Correct. But, but not but you the. Can, but you're not immune to the re-expression, wow. which is the shingles. The shingles coming back. And so when you say it comes from the outside, I mean you, that whole thing, the description of it traveling along the nerves <laughs> until it pops out. So this is literally something that comes from the inside out. Yes, it comes from the inside out. And expresses itself on the skin, and you'll see the little uh, tiny little blisters and the redness, um, and you'll feel this intense itching and burning. And the reason we want to treat this with the vaccine is because of that itching and burning can last for months, and sometimes, in rare cases, be permanent. No. Yes. I've heard of it lasting years. I knew someone that got shingles in their hair. Their scalp broke out in shingles, that's and she was had terrible migraines, and the, yes, it that's, was really awful. That's an expression of, uh, of shingles, say, in a, what we call the trigeminal distribution, which is a, a nerve, again, central nervous system. So very important to get the shingles shot. Uh, we have it at WellMed, and um, even if you've uh, had shingles as recently as six to eight weeks ago, you can still get the shot. To and try to get, prevent that. And you uh, won't get them again, hopefully? Hopefully. It's not 100%. It's not 100%, but it's pretty close. <laughs> and uh, if you've ever had shingles, you'll know you don't want to get those again. I, I've talked to folks who've had it. It's awful. Yes. Awful. Every, everyone I know that have ever had shingles have said, it's awful. Yep. Yep. So now, When I was a kid, your parents wanted you to get chicken pox. So if, as in our case, little Spencer Sharwell down the street had chicken pox, man, we were at his house in like 20 seconds. That's right. Penny next door's got chicken pox. Go play with her. Exactly. Yeah, that's (laughs) called, uh, yeah, group immunity. Uh, We get everybody to get it and then, you know. But it's, uh, back in the old days, uh, that's the way we did it. But nowadays, you don't have to go through this. Now, the young young kids are, are getting... Uh, immunized as well. So uh, we hope <laughs> we, for all the parents out there, we hope you're immunizing your children. <laughs> yes, and so at WellMed, we can, we offer that uh, those immunizations, and and um, and we're more than happy to uh, to answer any questions uh, pertinent to to that particular. Now, what about measles and mumps, which uh, some folks have never had? Do you give a mumps vaccine to older people? Well, you know, that depends on their uh, point of origin. If they've had the three MMRs, uh, and we have, uh, we have documentation of that, uh, rarely do we do that. However, if they come from a foreign country and we don't have any record of them being immunized, yes, we, we can definitely give them an MMR. Because when I was a kid, there was no MMRs. There was none. No. What does an MMR mean? It's Measles, mumps, rubella. Rubella. That's what I thought you meant, but yeah, I was just making sure it wasn't dollar. like a candy bar. I've got or three something. little kids, so I'm used to all this vernacular now because like they're a- all getting their shots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want? But pretty soon we're all going to have shot records, just like our kids. 
That's right. That's, <laughs> That's right. exactly right. Well, now, go ahead, Karen. No, no, I was going to say, so, you know, the the other, um, probably the next biggest issue that you probably face in the clinics, at least in South Texas, is probably diabetes, if I was guessing. Yeah, you'd be guessing correctly. This is kind of the capital of diabetes here for a variety of reasons. And as a caregiver, uh, it would be a great thing for you to be able to recognize that in in the in the uh, in the loved one you're caring for, and uh, this is a basic medical school 101 recognition of uh, diabetes symptoms. Uh, in physician uh, terminology, it's PPP, which is uh, we won't go into that, but basically the first P is polyphagia, which is they get really hungry, they're eating all the time, uh, just just have an insatiable appetite. Uh, the other P is what we refer to as polyuria, which is urinating. And you All know, di- the time. Diabetes actually uh, is Latin for uh, sweet urine. Wow. That, okay, that's the first time I've ever heard that. Have you? Did you know that? Yes, because in the old days, a, a simple test was to take some urine and touch it to your tongue, and if it was sweet... It was a diagnosis. Okay, that was she why. She thinks I'm kidding. No, but it's no, true. I would say that's why the medical. There weren't as many people in the medical profession <laughs> <I> then. <laughs> I think the last person to do that was probably Hippocrates. Yeah. But you mean <laughs> I have to do what? <laughs> I'm not going to do. That. I'm going to be a politician. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and then you know, also uh, going along with with all that urination, you're going to have uh, rapid shifts in weight, either. Uh, uh, gaining in weight from all that eating or losing weight because you're becoming dehydrated from uh, all the uh, all the urination. Uh, so uh, these are the kinds of symptoms we're looking for, as well as a lot of people just come in with blurred vision. Mm, Blurry vision. That doesn't sound That's good. That's a pretty common one. Um, or fungal infections, skin infections. Really? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's related to diabetes. That's all related to diabetes because when your blood sugar is high, well, guess what? Oh, the bacteria just the bacteria and the fungi are just having a having a bunch of fun on your skin. Check out old Roland over here, man! (laughs) Jump on that skin, right? (laughs) So these are these are the things that we we look for as caregivers, uh, and then you come in and you come in fasting. Uh, that what does that mean? Fasting. That means I'm going to be very hungry until you finish all of your tests. That's correct. <laughs> that means that you come in after midnight. You don't have anything but water. You can eat your dinner. You can at breakfast. Do not have any coffee with sugar or milk in it. Do not have your donut. Just water. Black coffee is okay. Don't put anything in it, and you're good to go to come to the office to get that fasting blood sugar which will help us determine if you're diabetic. There's also something called the A1C, which is pretty important. Oh, yes. Yeah, the A1C is also a test we can use to diagnose diabetes, but more often we use it to follow along how, how well it's being controlled. Got to stop you right here. We are flat out of time. You're a delight to talk with. We've really enjoyed this. For folks who might be interested, are, are you adding folks to your roster of patients? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, I'm more than happy to take care of uh, as many patients as I can take care of. I enjoy spending time and talking to my patients just the way we've talked here today. And where is the Westlake office? It's right there off of uh, 151 in West Military. 
Uh, there's a big green sign. It says WellMed, and uh, there you'll find me. And uh, I'm more cool. than happy to take care of uh, anyone who walks through that door. Dr. Eduardo Caveda, thank you very much. For Carol Zerniel, I'm Ron Aaron. In just a moment, guess what we're going to do? Take 10 right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. Thank you, Dr. Caveda. You're listening to us on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, and one of the things I'm most pleased about being a WellMed patient is the way in which I'm treated by all the staff at the clinic I go to. And Dr. Robin Eikoff, that's not by accident. No, it's not. We really spend a lot of time training our staff and asking them to really connect with the patients and get to know them because we consider them part of our clinic home. And the other thing that's really impressive to me is the amount of time my WellMed physician spends with me, and you do the same thing with your patients. Yeah, I, I really do try to, and, and we do a lot, a lot more time than your typical uh, provider can afford to give. And I think that allows us to get to know the whole patient and not just their diseases. That's cool. Don't have a lot of time to talk about prevention, but you do a lot of that as well. We spend an enormous amount of time on preventative measures. Want information about WellMed? Want to be a WellMed patient? Call 210-614-WELL. 210-614-WELL. We appreciate you sticking with us right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. As we conclude each of our programs, we go to Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman, nationally known psychotherapist and an expert on burnout, uh, as well as caregiving and addiction. And Carol Zerniel is with us as well. I'm Ron Aaron. First topic is a pretty interesting one. Carol, you came up with the caregiver dilemma. Yes, this was a topic that I saw in a posting from a caregiver uh, who actually works in the aging business. But she was talking about how one day you realized you just can't do it anymore. You are taking care of your family. You have a job. You have this whole other life and demands of things you have to do. It's your life. Um, but you're also taking care of a parent. And you just can't do it all anymore. So what do you do, Jamie, when you can't do it all anymore? You know, Carol, this is uh, this dilemma comes in all forms, all sizes, and I, I almost have. It begs the question: Is it emotional? Is it financial? Is, is, is it um, you know healthcare? I mean, it's a treadmill caregiving, basically, and you want to be able to stay on the treadmill, if you will, to help somebody. But um, at some point in time, you have to define what it is. What is the dilemma? And I guess that leads me to the answer of. You really have to peel this onion uh, a layer at a time. Um, and the metaphor of an onion is obvious because you kind of cry at every layer, and and you peel it till you get to the core. And so, first, we have to decide what the dilemma is here. Well, I think that's a I think that's a very good point because we tend to think of caregiving as this monolithic, you know, task. And we're not really thinking about, I'm feeling overwhelmed. I can't do it all. Is it not enough hours in the day? Is it not, not not enough money in the bank? Is it I'm emotionally just frazzled? So I think that's a very good point when looking at any caregiving problem. And is exactly. the answer you're, different? You know, you're neglecting your self-care throughout. It may be an issue of your own dehydration, your loved one's health care. Um, it could be a rehab issue. 
But in totality, it's exactly what you said, this very monolithic concept called caregiving. And so when we take things in, if you will, not to trivialize it, in bite-sized proportions, uh, a step at a time instead of the whole marathon in front of us, it, it does become a little bit more manageable in terms of actually seeking out resources for each one of these layers, if you will, of the onion. Well, give us an example of how that would work. Let's say... Well, l- let me let me provide one that the author provided. Oh, good. Okay, so she's, for her, it was she couldn't physically be there and be with her family or work. All She just didn't have enough time in the day. And she knew she needed to bring in an outside person into the home to care for her mother. So, but she she didn't know how to tell her mother, I ha- I can't do it anymore. I need somebody. You have to have somebody besides me because mother likes it. You know, I don't want anybody from the outside here. You know, Carol, when you say that, it, it goes right to my heart almost as a therapist and thinking that the caregiver at that point in time starts almost looking at their own self-worth. Why can't I take care of my mom? Why can't I take care of my loved one? You know, this should be something that, that should come to me. And so I go right to the therapeutic side of, of, of the next thing, which is you've got to find a therapist or a person who can help you peel this layer. This is not a question of self-worth or value. It may be things that you're not even seeing because you're, you can't see the forest because of the trees. But, again, when you're questioning that, how to have a conversation with somebody, the first thing to do is how to have the conversation with yourself. So it, you have to be okay. You have to acknowledge, I can't do it all. I do need help. I know that my mother's not going to like this and kind of practice what that conversation might be like so that it ends up hopefully being a, a positive for both of you. Absolutely. And when you have this conversation, make sure you've gone to enough support groups and, and asked enough people, like at the Area Agency on Aging or other resources, exactly all the questions you need to ask so that you never really have to worry about fielding the answers. And and the next thing I will say very quickly, and then I'm sure Ron wants to chime in just through his own personal, uh, you know, experience, is is that you don't do this on your own. Don't Don't think about doing this on your own. Make sure you have a team. Make sure you have your family and maybe most importantly a third party to facilitate this conversation. Well, um, so one of the ways you might make it a positive for you and your mom is letting your mom know how much control she's going to have. You know, you're you you that's your mom. She can only tell you so much. You guys have this relationship. You bring in somebody from the outside. A, she gets to pick who. You know, you're going to bring her a couple of people. Uh, two, she gets to. It's going to be person centered. This lady is going to be there to help do what she wants her to do versus what you have time to do. Maybe you just zoom in and do laundry or zoom in and fix a meal. This lady is going to be able to work with her and help her get done whatever it is she needs to get done, which is, you know, which is exactly very different. The, the, the direction, and it's allowing her to feel that she's a part of this process. You know, when you are part of the process, then you're gaining self-esteem. Again, we've, we've had conversations about this before, about learned helplessness. And too many caregivers will say, I can't take care of my mom, therefore I'm going to go find the answer. Whereas actually the collaboration with your mom, if she can cognitively handle it, is is maybe the process that's most important. Yeah, I was going to ask, uh, Dr. Jamie, by the way, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Take 10, part of Caregiver SOS On Air. 
We talk about issues with Dr. Jamie Heisman and Carol Zerniel. I'm Ron Aaron. I was going to say, Dr. Jamie, unless, as you pointed out, uh, the care recipient is cognitively somehow impaired, uh, doesn't she probably know that her daughter is stressed and time is a problem and, and would be willing to talk about it? You would hope so. You know, common sense may say that. But, again, if somebody is cognitively impaired, you also have to look at, at issues of who's making what decision. Now, I'm saying if she wasn't cognitively impaired. If, if she was not cognitively right. impaired, right. Then, then, the, then the answer is pretty simple. It's about communication. And, and the first communication you need to have, again, as I said, is with yourself or a support group and make sure then that you actually, like Carol said, in some ways have rehearsed it but also heard uh, resources and answers from other people. You would assume that your loved one would like to be a part of this conversation, but in many ways, this is a lifetime of, of sort of things we've built up without clinical intervention, and, and so we don't know. We need to be well prepared when we go into this. Just a question that spins out of that. Uh, if she feels she has absolutely no time, how does she carve out time for going to a support group? Won't she feel even more stressed? That's a great question. I'm sure Carol, through Caregiver SOS, can help answer that. But we are talking about time management. You know, the overwhelming thing, that monolithic thing that Carol was talking about, that caregiving is, says that we don't have time. When literally we may have the time, but we're allocating, you know, this this overwhelmed feeling and, and thinking that there is no time. This is one of the most important reasons why we have to stop uh, really observe our behavior, accept what's in front of us, and be able to let go. And we do that best with support groups. Right. And what you said is so true about rearranging your time and prioritizing. You know, it's amazing if we want to go um, see a movie or we want, you know, there's other things that we really want to do, we find time to do those. Uh, and, and caregiving, we just get so overwhelmed with all the caregiving we don't think there are there's any daylight, there's any cracks, uh, or that we have any control, and that's really a myth. We have more control than we think we do, even in you know very difficult situations. This has to be a pretty common complaint you hear from a whole lot of caregivers. Well, I think it, you know I I would say yes, Jamie. You were about to say. No, no, it is. Is it? And the heavy lifting, as I, I was just going to mention, should be done by licensed professionals who literally can make that type of clinical decision for yourself and your loved one so that you can support their decision. This does not have to be a cavalier thing where caregivers have to do it all. Often, as we've often said here, the messenger can get killed. So make sure that if there is a need, now, A, for the caregiver to take care of themselves, to bring somebody else in, that you're also supported by other kind of clinicians who your loved one trusts. Well, and I just as an example, I have uh, I know of someone who recently brought in a geriatric care manager. They'd never even considered it. They, you know, they had a family. They weren't all on the same page about mom's care. Brought in a geriatric care manager, and they were really, really um, surprised and and delighted because they really were almost on the same page. They just didn't realize it, and it took someone from the outside to get them there. That's pretty cool, Jamie. We are. Flat out of time, you get to make the last point. The last point is don't be a hero. Don't be a hero. Make sure that you're actually bringing your loved one in, but do at all costs. Bring your entire family and the healthcare professionals in as well. Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman and Carol Zerniel. I'm Ron Aaron. 
Oddly enough, it'll look like we planned this out next week, the spinoff out of this topic, caregiver burnout. We talk about it on Take 10 right here on your friendly 930 AM, The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on air. Presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer.